you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Last week I just skimmed across the top of Romans 8. Um, but there's so much good stuff here, I, I can't just bump up against it and walk away from it. I do want us to spend the next few weeks looking at these glorious truths in much finer detail. As I said, this is the Mount Everest of Romans, and so we've got much to learn in Romans chapter 8. But if you're there with me this morning, please stand and let me read to you and remind you at the same time, this is what God has said to His church. And I pray that we would treasure these words. So right after we read, please remain standing and let's worship the Lord in song for what He's written to us. Romans 8 verse 1. Paul writes, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God. It does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Now, in Romans 8, where we are this morning, you have to realize that there is no exhortation or command that can be found in these passages. Paul is simply teaching the church about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And so what we see here, we have to not so much directly apply, but understand how it indirectly applies to our life, because these are the things that the Spirit is doing and so we have to submit ourselves to the work of the Spirit within us. Now, this is especially important sermon for us this morning because of what we're seeing take place in the world today. And it's taking place so rapidly. And the world is becoming a very powerful and effective influencer of people in a particular mindset that is without question godlessness. Okay, We are seeing what we talked about in Romans 1 that God is giving the world over to a depraved mind at a rapid rate, and the world is taking that and running with it away from God at an extraordinary pace. When the last is given by Paul in Romans 1, he says that the world is being 
filled with all godlessness or unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, and on and on and on he goes. This is how the world is impacting those through its influencing messages. This is how it is forming the world's way of thinking. So this is very important for us this morning because it is the Holy Spirit that works in exactly the opposite direction, creating within us a desire to think in a way that pleases the Lord. As I said last week, the first half of Romans 8 is about the significant roles of the Holy Spirit. So we need to listen carefully to everything that the text is saying within Romans 8, but we also need to be very careful to pay attention about what is not said in Romans 8 about what the Holy Spirit is not doing. And the reason I say not is because there is so much misunderstanding about what the Holy Spirit is doing in the church today. We have, without question, diminished the influence of the Holy Spirit to the master of emotions and nothing more. In fact, what is about the only time you hear the Spirit of God mentioned in a church service in these days? And you hear it pretty often. The Spirit was so active in the service this morning that brother so-and-so didn't even get to do what? Preach. Now, before I walk down through this, I, I don't want to say that the Spirit of God does not help us in our singing to the Lord. In fact, there is a passage that addresses that very issue, and it's in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. You'll remember it. Paul tells us there, Do not be drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. Now, I'm not meaning to split hairs here, but this is not in the context of a worship service. This is just in the context of daily living. That the Spirit of God leads us in this mindset and this attitude and this action of opening our mouth and singing praises to God through the day. And one of the most memorable times I ever experienced that was when Brother Don McDougal was here. And everywhere I drove him around that particular week, if we weren't talking in the car, he was singing hymns. And so I got to the point to where I just stopped talking because I wanted to hear him sing. He knew so many hymns and praises to God, and I would sing kind of quietly under my breath. But I just enjoyed that moment, and I realized what the Spirit of God was doing as far as worship. It takes place on a daily basis, not just here within the context of the worship setting of the body. You know, when you think about the ministry of the Holy Spirit and, and what I just mentioned as far as what is said in churches today, we have to remember the gospel promise that comes to us that Ezekiel mentions. He says, or the Lord says through Ezekiel the prophet, he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you'll be clean. I'll cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart. And then he goes on to say, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Meaning the promise of the Holy Spirit, He is directly connected with the Word of God and us keeping the Word of God. And yet we say now in the church today that the Spirit was so active among us that we didn't get time to preach or to hear the Word of God. 
It's almost as if the Spirit of God has completely changed His purpose in what He is supposed to be doing. When you reflect on the day of Pentecost, when God actually fulfilled that promise and sent the Holy Spirit, did He lead from the choir loft or did He lead from the pulpit? I would suggest to you that the Spirit filled the followers of Christ so that they opened their mouth and proclaimed the glories of God in the gospel. You see. There's passages all over the place that speak to us. You think about when we put on the full armor of God. One of the ways that we do that, he tells us, is to take up the sword of the Spirit, which is what? The songbook? No, it's the Word of God. You see, what the Holy Spirit is supposed to be doing is leading us in the Word and allowing the Word of God to manifest itself in our lives. As I was talking to Tyler this morning, we're so bored with the teaching and the preaching of the Word, the first hurdle that you and I have to get over is the time constraint that you're under now as I speak and paying attention long enough to try and comprehend or understand what I'm saying. Oh, we're so far away from the Spirit of God in the church today. It's shameful. We need to fully understand what He's doing in our midst and lay hold of those particular things and allow the Spirit of God to work among us. Now, the initial ministry, or at least the first ministry that Paul wants to address in regard to the Holy Spirit is what we're considering this morning. But I want to all start all the way back just to the Holy Spirit's many roles in relationship to the gospel. And the first role is something that I've already mentioned. The Holy Spirit is very active in the preaching of the gospel. In fact, it is the preaching of the gospel that the Holy Spirit empowers. Take you back to Pentecost. You've got a man that stands up before the entire nations of people. And this man, before he was filled with the Holy Spirit, is the same man who denied the Lord Jesus not once. Because if he'd done it once, we could kind of say, okay, I understand that. We all do some things once and we back up and we go, you know, I messed up. I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have done that. No, he didn't do it once. How many times did Peter deny the Lord Jesus? Three times. So this is Peter without the Spirit, yet when Peter is filled with the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, he stands before the crowd and he begins proclaiming the gospel. And he's such a changed man. By the time you get to Acts chapter 4, Peter says this after he's been arrested by those same religious leaders that he was afraid of before. He says, we cannot stop speaking about what we've seen and what we have heard. So this is one of the very first things that the Spirit of God does. And when I preach the gospel or when you share the gospel, you need to understand if the Spirit of God is not at work, there is no power. He is the deciding factor. He is the power. And if someone does hear that message and believe, it is because of the work of the Spirit empowering the message to penetrate your heart. Someone has once said, and it's often heard, preaching is, is very similar to, to going out to the, the cemetery or the graveyard. You're doing the same thing because all your listeners are dead. And yet, if the Spirit of God is manifest and working, He is able to raise the dead and bring them out of the darkness into marvelous light. And I, I, people do this, and please don't take this as a criticism. When someone wants to hear the gospel, oftentimes, who do people call? A preacher. 
Would you talk with them? They're on their deathbed. And I love to do it. And please call and ask me every single time. But I'm not the one that really needs to be there. Y'all understand. You need to be praying that the Holy Spirit is there. Because if He's there, they'll listen. And if He's not there, they will not listen. So that's the first role of the Holy Spirit. But the second is like it. Not only is he involved in the proclamation of the gospel, but he's also involved in the receiving of the gospel. As I said, when sinners hear the gospel and believe, it is the Holy Spirit who is the effectual factor. And Jesus explained this in John chapter 3 when Nicodemus had that question on his heart. You know, Lord, what must I do to be saved that he can never find the words to communicate? And Jesus responds with, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, Jesus immediately communicates salvation with the Holy Spirit. You must be born of the Spirit of God. He goes on to say, That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Don't be amazed at what I say to you. You must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it's coming from or where it's going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. He's the effectual factor. And I, 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 I'm convinced of this. There's a great many men that has been convinced by other men and a great fewer men that's been converted by the Holy Spirit. Because when the Holy Spirit does it, men are truly changed. And that's one of the reasons I, I guess reluctance is the word when it comes to speaking with children about the gospel. Because they're so willing to hear, they're so willing to do whatever you tell them to do. But I know that it's an absolute necessity that the Holy Spirit convert them and not me. And I've seen many parents, not from this congregation, but from other churches that I've been a part of in the past, be so anxious for their kids to come to saving faith, and rightly so, that they press and push and lead their kids along into saying and to doing and to whatever else, and not being patient and praying and waiting for the Spirit of God to work in their child's heart. You need to understand it's not words that they need to recite. It's the Holy Spirit that they must hear from. And when He does, there is a powerful change in all of our lives. But it's not just the preaching, it's not just the receiving, but it's also the sealing. And we learned this back in Ephesians 1 where Paul writes, After listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Christ with the Holy Spirit. And I've used this illustration over the past several weeks. It's, it's the marriage union, right? And it's like the Holy Spirit presides over that service. He's the one that seals us in Christ. And you're not going anywhere. He makes that effectual sealing or that effectual bond with us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're not coming out of that union. For those who teach or preach or believe in the fact that someone can have salvation and lose salvation, don't understand the ministry and work and power of the Holy Spirit. He does these things. He's the one that seals us in Christ. And we don't break eternal bonds. If you remember when I read the whole of Romans, just a, I guess just a week or so ago, Romans 8 ends with nothing 
can separate you from the love of God. And it starts with death, but what's the second thing that can't separate you? Life. Your life. Meaning there's nothing you're going to do to separate the bond that was formed in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. Nothing separates that bond. And so we have that comfort, right? But not only does he make that seal, he's also there as a pledge or as a promise. God puts that spirit within us as a promise of our redemption. And that's what he's looking for. That's the reason that we are redeemed and raised to newness of life. Look at verse 9 of Romans chapter 8. Look what Paul says here. You are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. He's the determining factor. He's the deciding influence. He's the mark of our redemption. It is the Holy Spirit. And there's other false teachings that have swept through the church, particularly the charismatic church, about receiving the Spirit later on or a second blessing or something of that nature, you performing something or doing something or being enabled to do something so that the Spirit of God might come upon you. No. If the Spirit of God is not in you, you are not converted. If the Spirit of God is in you, you are converted. It's as simple as that. He is the deciding factor. He is the influence. He is the mark in which God sees as His own children. But that's bringing us to Christ and sealing us to Christ. The Holy Spirit is also at work in bringing us into glory. Look down at verse 11, the last verse that I read this morning. Verse 11 says, But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He, the Father who raised Christ Jesus from the dead, will also give life to your mortal bodies through who? His Spirit who dwells in you. Not only does the Holy Spirit start the process, if you like, the Holy Spirit finishes the process. In some way, a mysterious way, a powerful way, a unique way, He will be right there, the Trinitarian God, bringing us into glory, glorifying Ourselves, if you will. It is the ministry and the work of the Holy Spirit. He's there at the beginning. He's there at the end. But He's also working every single way in between those two moments. So between conversion and resurrection, we experience the powerful, sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. Now, what does that sanctifying work look like? Look down in verse 29 of Romans chapter 8. What does it say there? For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's what the Spirit's doing. We like to relegate him to this and to that, to music and those sort of things, to feelings and to emotions and all of that. But you need to understand the job one. Job number one of the Holy Spirit is conforming you into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what I touched on last week as we were skimming through, He uses every experience of life in doing that. 
when we read, when we finally get to Romans 8, 28, for God works all things together for the good, right? That's what He's doing. He's using all of those things in our life, whether we receive them as good or bad, it does not matter. God is using those things to manifest Christ in our life. And the person that's pulling the plow is the Holy Spirit. He's the one that's bearing fruit of the Lord Jesus Christ in the character of Christ within us. Now, what does it mean to be conformed to the image of Christ? Well, look at Romans 8 verse 3. And I think that's what Paul is touching on here. Verse 3 says, For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Now, if Paul stopped there, my thinking would be radically different at this point. Because if Paul said the gospel so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, I would immediately say he's speaking of a righteousness that we could not produce. It's an alien righteousness, if you will, and it's imputed to us in Christ. And I'll be right about that. Because that would meet the requirement of the law, because the law requires a righteousness that we do not have and we cannot produce. Right. And so therefore, at the cross is the great exchange. He takes our sin and he gives us our righteousness. So if Paul stopped there, I'd go, that's exactly what he's talking about. But Paul doesn't stop there with that statement. Notice again what he says in verse four. So that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So I don't think there, I'm convinced rather, that he's not talking about this alien righteousness that we receive necessarily, but he's talking about that righteousness that we have received begins to produce fruit in our life in order that we begin to meet the requirements of the law. And you're like, why would you think that? Because I'll take you all the way back to the gospel promise in Ezekiel. Remember the gospel promise in Ezekiel, verse 27? I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. You see, Christ paid our penalty, imputes to us righteousness. Now we're able to walk, not according to the flesh now, but we're able to walk according to the spirit which is in ways, in a growing sense, we are now walking in obedience to the Word of God. So watch this. What's the Spirit doing? Conforming me to the image of Christ. What in the world does that look like? Keeping the law, obeying the Word. It's all the same thing. We know the Lord Jesus met fully the requirements of the law because He never sinned. He was without sin altogether. But now the Spirit's work conforming us to that same image. So what do you think is going to happen to the issue of sin in your life? And what's going to happen to the issue of obedience in your life? Well, the issue of sin in your life, now you've gone to war with the sin in your life because the Spirit dwells within you and you're putting to death the deeds of the body. And at the very same time, you're reading the Word of God and you're submitting your life to the Word of God, you see. And all the way, you're looking more and more and more like the Son of God. Now, how does the Spirit do all that? 
It's pretty simple math. The first thing he's got to change in your life is how you think. And so Paul wants to take up this issue of your mind. And here's why. Let me give you a little bit of the end of the story before I walk you through the details. When he changes your mind, he changes how you live. Because until your mind has changed, your living will not change. So when the Spirit of God begins to work in your life, the very first thing that He does is He changes how you think. Look at Romans 8, look at verse 5. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are in line with or are according to the Spirit implied, they set their mind on the things of the Spirit. In other words, the very thing that Paul wants us to begin with is how the Holy Spirit changes the way that we think. He works in your mind. Now, this is the point where I had to do a tremendous amount of editing because I've spent a number of years or a lot of time over the last several years studying the mind and the spirit within the context of Scripture. There's so much here. I mean, I was just weeding out passages because I was like, I don't have time. I don't have time. I don't have time. This is literally something we could spend six weeks talking on that I'm going to summarize in just a few more minutes with you. But I encourage you when you're reading through the text and you notice the word mind, you need to understand that there's a number of Greek words that we translate into mind and I'm about to give you just a few of them. But these truths are found all over Scripture because this is so important. This is the beginnings, if you will, of your sanctification. This is where he's shooting at. This is the bullseye, if you will. So one of the Greek words, and again, we take all just a basket full of Greek words and we translate all of them into the mind, which is unfortunate. But among those, let me give you three words this morning and you can just listen if you're taking notes. Uh, you can catch up with me later and I'll give you my notes. But the first Greek word, the, and I, I'm, go, I'm describing these kind of in more of a significant order as we go. But I guess the simplest word would be the word noose, spelled exactly like hangman's noose, if you like, N-O-U-S. But it basically means understanding. And we often find it translated mind in the scriptures. Let me give you a for instance where we find this word. Luke chapter 24. The Lord Jesus is risen from the dead. He's meeting with his disciples. And there Luke writes these words. Then Jesus opened their minds to understand Scripture. In other words, the Lord sat down with them and opened up their understanding. And you have this word noose. All of a sudden they got it. And they're like, oh. I've been reading this thing my whole life, and now I understand. You've connected the dots for me, Lord. So you have this word noose. Now, the reason I want you to know this word is because this word is used a couple of times in Romans in very important places. The first place that it's mentioned, we've already been through, Romans 1, verse 28. It says there, just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved, what? Mind which is this word noose. In other words, God, God is giving this godless world over to a depraved understanding. They don't get it. They have no concept of truth whatsoever. Oh, I could use all kinds of examples here. Let's just start with the issue of abortion. And you have a conversation and you're going to... 
do you really not get this? That the baby inside of you is, is a person? That they're like a life? Do you not comprehend that? Oh no, they have no comprehension or understanding of truth. They don't care about truth. Their noose, if you will, is totally depraved. They don't get it. They don't see it. They don't understand at all. And we could talk about a number of issues again, but you get the picture. I have no comprehension. I have no understanding. And you're standing there in disbelief, shaking your head like, I, I don't understand how you don't get this. Well, the reason they don't get this is because they have no understanding. They're depraved of mind. So that's the first place it's used. One of the last places it's used, significantly enough, is Romans 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And it's the word noose. Don't be thinking like this world any longer. Be transformed by the renewing of your understanding. And you go, oh, I'll get this. I understand this because I'm beginning to understand truth. I'm beginning to understand things from God's perspective and not the world's perspective. How did this happen? Work of the Holy Spirit. He's the one that's doing these things in your life. He's the one that's helping you see things from a whole new way of thinking, a whole new context. And you begin to think differently. The second word, and I just want to mention this word, dianoia. It's only used 12 times in the New Testament. Not used in the, in the book of Romans, but it's a little advanced understanding because now we've moved into the area of the process of thinking. This is involved critical thinking. And the reason that I want you to understand this, because I want you to see Ephesians 2, 3 in this process. It says, among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature children of wrath. Dianoia, critical thinking. We indulged ourselves in this way of thinking that was completely away from God and toward the flesh. In other words, if we were hungry, we ate whatever we wanted. If we had an itch, we scratched it. If we had a desire, we fulfilled it. Right? We had this critical thinking way where man was absolutely in the center of everything and God was utterly removed. That's the word dianoia. Let me take you to the third word and the last word, phroneo. If you're taking notes, this is the most important word, P-H-R-O-N-E-O, phroneo. This is it. This is the sort of thinking that directly affects living. If you've ever spent much time in the book of Philippians, this word is used a number of times. But it's also used in Romans a few times as well. It's a very important word. Let me give you just a little bit of background for this word so you can kind of grasp it. It's a mindset. It's a way of thinking. Again, it's being so convinced that it affects how you live. Matthew 16 is where this word is used. Do you remember Matthew 16? It's when the Lord Jesus revealed himself to the disciples. Now, who do you say that I am? And remember what Peter said, uh, you're the Christ, right? Now, right after that, immediately after that revelation that Peter gets that, Jesus begins to explain that he's about to go up to Jerusalem where he'll suffer and he'll be crucified, right? Now, do you remember what Peter said in response to that dismal news that they're going up to Jerusalem and then the Lord there is going to suffer and be crucified by the Israel? Peter says this, God forbid it, this will never happen to you. That's what he says to the Lord. Now listen to the Lord's response. 
But Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. That's this word. In other words, Peter, the way that you think is so man-centered that you're no longer following God's will, you're following Peter's will. And the only thing that's important is that we follow God's will. So he responds to Peter, get behind me, Satan. And we think how cruel, but no, how significant. Because Peter had a mindset that was carrying him directly away from God. And the Lord was like, oh no, Peter. Not going to happen around here. You need to change the way that you're thinking. And if you change the way that you're thinking, you'll change the direction in which you're walking. It's not about what you think. It's not about what you want. It's about what God wants. Therefore, we are going to Jerusalem. And I will suffer and I will be crucified. You need to change your phreneo. It's a way of thinking that affects how you live. To give you another worldly example, you think about politics. Man, people are so convinced in their politics. I have come to understand that it does not matter what you say about their candidate. He could be the worst human being on the planet, but it will not change how they vote. Because they're absolutely so convinced about these particular things, they don't want to hear it. You see, their mindset is such that nothing will change how they vote. That's this word. I have a mindset that affects how I do, how I live. Enter the Holy Spirit. That's exactly what the Holy Spirit gives you. The Holy Spirit gives you a different mindset, a different way of thinking, a whole new perspective that changes how you live. That's what the Holy Spirit does, job one. Because He's got to change what you do. He's got to change how you think. He's got to change what you say. He's got to change how you live. And the only way, and He's not concerned with externalism. I'm not concerned with that. Holy Spirit's not concerned with you coming to church on Sunday morning, dressing up nice, putting a smile on your face. No, no, no. He wants to change your heart so that you're so much in love with the Lord Jesus Christ. If you find an opportunity to worship your Lord and Savior, you're there. I'm there. I just love Him so much and I love the people of God so much. You better believe I'm going to be there. I'm not going to miss that opportunity. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He's not concerned with your shirt. He's concerned with your heart. And the way that He changes your heart is He changes how you think. And He gives you, again, a whole new perspective about these things. So let's look at the passages. But first, I want to take up the mindset of the flesh for two reasons. Number one, that's what Paul takes up first. So that's what we'll take up first. But secondly, we have this fleshly mindset in common because that's where we all started. Look at verse 5. For those who are according to the flesh, unconverted man, right? Set their minds, they have a mindset on the things of the what? Flesh. Pretty simple. But those who are according to the Spirit have been converted, filled with the Spirit of God. Their mindset's totally different. What's it on? The things of the Spirit. You see, the mindset on the flesh is 
death. Of course it is. It has to be. But the mindset on the spirit, opposite, life and peace. Because the mindset, the phreneo on the flesh, is hostile toward God. It does not subject itself to the law of God. It's not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now it's really hard to believe that that's where we all started, but that's exactly where we all started. Because we weren't born with the Spirit. But we were born in the flesh and we had a mindset that affected how we live and how we lived was according to the flesh because that's how we thought. So the mindset of the flesh is on everything that is not God. It's a mindset that trusts in its own wisdom and that results in its own living. It exalts self. Again, it's motivated by desires. In its essence, it's what it means to be a humanist. Man is at the center of its universe. Whatever feels right is right. What the heart wants, the heart has. That's the mindset of the flesh. And as I begin the sermon, let me go back to it. And the world is racing along beside of them, pushing them further and further and further down this way of thinking. It wants them to think this way. And so it loads them in the wagon and it tears off down the road exactly opposite of the direction that God's going in. Think about the sexual mindset in our day. It could not be further from truth. You think about sexual identity in our day. Man, we could use all those words. Noose, you got, you got no understanding if you don't have no difference between a man and a woman. And you're a man, you want to call yourself a woman? You have, your way of thinking could not be more godless, could not be more set on the flesh could not be more motivated by a lack of truth. In fact, what is it? In Ephesians, it's referred to as ignorance. That's that way of thinking. Go down the list again, abortion. All of these things, as Paul says in, in verse 7, the first part of verse 7, it is hostile to God. Their way of thinking is absolutely 180 contrary to the thinking and the mindset of God. It has nothing to do with the way that God thinks. Notice the second part of verse 7. The mindset on the flesh is unable to subject itself to the law of God. And this is Cody's word, hupotasso. The mindset before converted, before filled with the Spirit, is unable to submit itself to the Word of God. Unable. Absolutely, 100% unable to submit itself. Listen, it's not a flesh and blood sort of thing. You walk up to an unconverted man and begin to explain to them truth. They do not understand it. And even if they did, they could not submit their lives to it. Walk up to any of them, any subject, any topic, any illustration you want to have. They will not understand and they cannot. It's not that they don't want to. They cannot submit themselves to truth because it's only the Holy Spirit working in them that brings about our submission to truth. And then look at the last part of verse 7. They're not even able to do so. They're unable to subject themselves to the law of God, not even able to do so. We talk about free will around here. And, and usually you get on the subject of free will. You think about 1 Corinthians 2 verse 14 where it says, A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolish to him. He cannot understand 
And so we usually go to that passage. I think this passage is even more emphatic. They are not able. They are simply not able. We are not running around in our own free will, choosing this or choosing this, choosing to follow Christ or choosing to follow myself, choosing to turn to the world, choosing to turn to the... That is not happening. Apart from the Spirit of God, you are not able to do so. To hear, submit, receive. It is 110% the work of the Holy Spirit. That's the mindset of the flesh. Now look, let's look at the mindset of the Spirit. It's just the opposite. It is the mind that is set on everything that is of God and it changes how we live. This mindset of the Spirit is a mind of peace. It's a mind of peace. It's not a mind at war. It's a mindset that pleases God because it submits to the Word of God. It's a mindset that is able. Listen, if you're filled with the Spirit of God, you're able to submit to the Word of God, according to the text. You just have to hear it and understand it, and you can submit to it. And you have to be careful here. Let me just say this as a warning, and as I move on, don't... You know how we say, oh, they're just setting their ways. Never let that be said of you. Because if you're setting your way, you're not setting the Spirit's way. So don't be that way. In fact, the closer that I've gotten to God over the years, and it's been a slow process, I promise you that, but the closer I've got to God, the less set in my ways I have become. Because I know my ways are insignificant. My opinion is the most useless thing. And if I ever share with you my opinion, it's time to remove me from this pulpit because it is absolutely worthless. Your time is much more precious than my opinion. The only things that we need to be set in is the truth that we find in the Word of God. The rest of it just hold with a loose hand because it doesn't matter. Don't be the person that's set in your ways. Be the person that is humble in every way and willing to receive because that's what the Spirit's doing. He's changing. And this is the key to the understanding the mindset of the Spirit. He uses the Word of God to shape and form us. It's the Word of God that becomes our filter. It's the Word of God that becomes our mindset. And we see everything in relationship to God. But again, there's no exhortation in the text. I just told you what the Spirit does. In fact, i got to leave Romans to even get an exhortation for you this morning to turn this from an instruction into a message. But we do have responsibility in this matter. You're not supposed to go home, sit down on the couch and just go, okay, go ahead and do it. I, that would be awesome. But you know what? Let's be honest. We wouldn't do it. Why? Because we like our thinking. Are you really so mature in your faith that perhaps some of you are? You're so mature in your faith that that's how you approach. All right, God, just teach me what to think. I confess I'm dumb as a stump. I don't know a thing. Would you please teach me? Man, if you're that mature, I'm very proud of you. That's where you need to be. But at the same time, you need to understand this is what the Spirit of God's doing but it also needs to be something that you give your life to. If you have your Bible, let me take you to the last passage this morning, and then we'll sing. Go with me to Colossians chapter 3. 
Because Paul uses exactly the same word, except this time he doesn't tie it with the ministry or the work of the Holy Spirit. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. Paul writes, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Verse 2. Phreneo. Set your mind on the things above and not on the things that are on the earth. Same word, this time you're doing it. And by the way, it's in a present tense. You're doing it all the time. In fact, you're going through this process that we have to go through as believers. And that's where Paul instructs us in the book of Corinthians. Take every thought captive because it all starts with a thought. It all starts with your way of thinking. And be mature enough and spend enough time in your word when your thinking starts running off in a particular direction. You go, time out. There's no way that what I'm spinning right now is glorifying to God. I may not know much, but I know enough to know that this thing that's rolling through my mind right now does not glorify God. And when the Bible talks about taking that captive, all he's saying is you need to submit that to Christ and go, Father, we got to go in the other way. And so I pray right now, I beg you that you give me the mind of Christ. You bring to mind scripture. You put something on that radio. You bring a sermon along. Put me in a position. If I can't find truth myself, I would at least hear truth. And I would, by the power of the Spirit, be willing to just submit myself to what I hear. And let it change my thinking. You're not couch potatoes, but you still need to understand this is what the Spirit of God is doing. So this, is, this needs to be what you're doing. And don't walk around with your hands in your pocket assuming, well, I know. What do you think about, I, I know. What do you think about this? Oh, I can tell you. Don't be so arrogant. If you know and it's true, it's because you've heard it from God and His Word. And therefore, put all your effort into understanding. Remember Proverbs? Get understanding. Get wisdom. Why? Because you're going to need it. Because that's going to shape how you think. And if He changes how you think, He'll change how you live. Now, let me take you to this. If you don't know Christ this morning, I have all the compassion in the world for you. And I said some pretty hard things this morning that you're without understanding. But don't let that rub you the wrong way. All of us in this room have been in the place where we are all together without understanding. And it comes to us by way of grace. If you'll turn your heart and life to the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll be filled with the Spirit and your life will change because He will begin to change the way that you think and you'll bear fruit to God. But if you're a saint, hey, we got a lot of work to do. We're going to have to spend more time in the Word and more time in prayer in order that these things might change how we think. Let's pray.